0: Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about motion in the ocean, climate change story. And my guests today are two of Ocean River Institute's Uh, student interns that have just recently joined me here in Cambridge. Uh, Dorothy Cooperson-Vueg is studying biology and English at UMass Amherst. Hello, Dorothy. Hello. And also here is Dan Willis. He's he's studying geology and history at the University of Rochester. Hello, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Climate change is impacting the ocean in a number of ways. We know all about you know, rising the sea levels uh, because of the thermal expansion. We're seeing increasing acidity with more carbon going into the seawater and creating um, carbon, um, making the water more acidic. And then uh, the ocean is absorbing 90% of the excess heat that's building up in the atmosphere. Much, Almost all of it's going into... The ocean, and yet still our temperatures are rising. So climate change is a serious problem that we all need to work at reducing our carbon footprints. Uh, And today we're going to talk about how the ocean takes up excess heat from global warming and how that's been easily misunderstood by people who don't know the oceans. They just kind of go by our experiences on the land and... um, forget that it's really different when you go under the waves and how the things, how heat moves around under the water there. Uh, Dorothy?
2: So, Rob, can you give us an example of um, where people, people might have uh, misconceptions or misunderstandings about the ocean?
1: Yes. So, this hit me like a two-by-four. Um, in 2015, uh, researchers found that the, the water in the surface waters of the Gulf of Maine were, um, had warmed by four degrees Fahrenheit, and that this was the greatest warming of a water body anywhere in the world. And it just didn't add up to my experience of being out in the water and stuff. And yet I know climate change is bad, but um, you know wh- what was with that? And so um, it turned out that it was based on a, on a science report that they had studied the waters from 2004 to 2013 for 10 years, and the mean surface water temperature in 2013 was the one that was four degrees warmer, and, um, and that led to their conclusion that that's faster than 99% of the, water, of the uh, world's other large bodies of salt water. Um, and, and so I went on a whale watch, out on north end of Stellwagen Bank and on the way back we saw humpback whales and there were right whales in the area but we didn't actually see one. One watcher saw them but they're low in the water so they're hard to see and stuff. Um, But we have whale watch buoys that that told us there was a right whale in the area. Uh, But the whale watch uh, narrator, she was explaining that uh, the reason that, uh, she was trying to make up a reason for why is remain special. And what she suggested was that, well, maybe, you know, global warming is this blanket of, of carbon um, and methane greenhouse gases, and that maybe it's thicker in our spots than other spots. And that just doesn't make sense, because they only measure global warming at Mauna Loa in Hawaii and Barrow, Alaska, where they're measuring the parts of uh, a million of carbon. That's now over 400 parts per million. I think it's 423 or something. So it's just bad that it's going up. And then there was a uh, graduate student that I heard talk about his work with lobsters. And he was telling me how the lobsters, how the surface waters are getting really hot in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, and I said, well, it's a good thing the lobsters don't live in the surface waters. And he goes, oh no, they can correlate the water temperatures all the way down. And, um, that doesn't jive with my understanding of oceans at all. And the irony was that he was telling us how the lobsters are doing worse south of Cape Cod, that the waters are very hot there and eutrophied and, and harmful algal blooms and stuff. And where the waters are cooler, uh, they're doing very well, which is in the Gulf of Maine. So this was against my experiences of, of how people
3: um, think
1: about the oceans.
3: Uh, So, Rob, you're talking a lot about the Gulf of Maine. What is considered to be the Gulf of Maine?
1: Good question.
3: It's a little more than just the
1: waters off the state of Maine. It is actually defined to the south by Cape Cod. So on the north side of the Cape, you come through the Cape Cod Canal into Cape Cod Bay, which is part of the Gulf of Maine. And so the Gulf of Maine goes north all the way, uh, coast of Maine, New Hampshire, Maine, New Brunswick, round to Nova Scotia, Yarmouth, and then off of Nova Scotia is uh, Browns Bank coming south, and then a 60-mile-wide northeast channel, which is the deep water entrance, and then George's Bank. So it's really a sea beside the sea. And in here in the Gulf of Maine, we've got uh, these rivers, the big St. John's, the Kennebec, the Penobscot, the Merrimack. They're all dumping fresh water into the Gulf of Maine. And because the world turns, uh, we have this Coriolis effect of things swinging to the right in the northern hemisphere. So when the river water comes in, it swings to the right or on the coast of Maine towards the south and sets up this gyre of circulating water in the Gulf of Maine. And it's 34 parts per thousand salinity, not 36 like out in the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a separate sea beside the sea. Um, and, and then we've got... Um, so that the study that was alarming us with the four-degree increase of Fahrenheit in the temperature of the water uh, was taken by, I believe, less than 12 surface samples in the Gulf of Maine. And if they were sampling close to, well, in the it was only during the summertime, and the summertime is uh-huh. when all this fresh water is less dense, and so it, it, it uh, spreads out over the surface of the seawater. And so they were measuring the water that had warmed up on the land uh, out here uh, to, to find that the Gulf of Maine was warming. Uh, and when you look at, now they have satellites that take pictures of the water temperature, and it looks like marble paper because different patches on the surface are different temperatures. So when it was warm, where well, they were sampling in 2013, it happened to be cold off of Provincetown um, and also off of um, over some of the deep water basins. So... Where you look, you've got to get a little different temperatures. Um, What? Oh, ask your questions. (laughs) (laughs) So
2: um, I've heard that there's certain things that uh, people in sailing races can do to try and get ahead without actually, you know, making use of engines or something like that, cheating. Um, And one of the things that you mentioned to us was this concept of the slippery
1: sea. Right. Um, So the slippery sea is this fresh water or surface water that's less dense. And um, it can actually be pushed by the wind in a different, either making the, the normal current go faster because it's sliding over the top or it could slide at a different angle from the current. And so, as you said, knowing where this is happening is an advantage to sailors that are trying to win the race. And so that's an example of how I think that the researchers founding this warming of the Gulf of Maine water, we're really just measuring the slippery sea of the Gulf of Maine and not, um, and not, not getting a picture of the whole, water body, the whole water body of the Gulf of Maine. When you
2: talk about the whole water body, um, is the Gulf of Maine not just one volume of water?
1: Well, it is one water body. So the Gulf of Maine is a water body. Texas Bay is a water body, but it's not one water mass. So the water masses, the Slippery Sea has two water masses. It's got a little bit of surface water sliding over the top, and then it's got this briny ocean underneath it. The Gulf of Maine has four water masses. You've got the surface water on the top, and then you have the shelf water, which floats across Georgia's banks and and, uh, Brown's banks. And then below that, there's the slope water. So this is water that's along the continental slope, and it's coming into the Gulf of Maine through that deep water channel. And at the very bottom is the very cold and dense Labrador current water that comes in uh, right along and spills down into the basin and stuff along the bottom. So it's like a layer sandwich of, of uh, four layers of,
3: of water. Um, Rob, so yesterday in Harvard Square, Ocean Science Savvy Wednesday, we were talking about plimsoll lines on the sides of ships. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So... If you ever, you
1: know, you're down the docks, you see these in the middle of the ship. It looks like a flagstaff with, with lines coming off it. And uh, if the ship is loaded, the water line will be at one of those marks. If the ship is empty, then the thing's high up on the high above the dock kind of stuff. But um, the, uh, the markings of the, and so Samuel Clemson was a uh, uh, parliament, he was a minister of parliament in England. And in the 1840s, he put through this ruling saying that you've got to load your ship so the water goes, the watermark is at the plimsoll line. And the reason there are different, there are six different plimsoll lines. Um, at the very top one, it says TF, and that means tropical freshwater. And the next one is freshwater, and then the next one is tropical, T for tropical, S for summer, W for winter, and the lowest one is WNA, meaning winter North Atlantic. And I always thought that, well, the water's the roughest in the, in the winter in the North Atlantic, so you are got to want to have the most freeboard, so the most abid- most sighted ship out of the water is, um, is when you load up to the WNA line at the bottom. But it turns out that if you're up in St. John's, Newfoundland, and you load up your ship in winter, to the Plimsoll line marked WNA. And if you don't, then you're out of compliance and the insurance companies won't help you out when you sit down. Um, So you load up to the WNA line. If you motor that ship down off of Brazil, where the Amazon brings in so much fresh water that you can be out of sight of land in fresh water from the Amazon. So that's tropical F. And you'll, you'll see, if you step off the boat, and and go for a swim and look over at the Plimso line, uh, you'll see that the boat is floating at that high mark, the TF mark. Uh, And it's not because they changed the cargo, uh, but because the water density has changed that much because um, fresh water and warm fresh water is the least dense of all water.
2: So basically, if you were to load up the ship to the... um to the highest line, like to the, to the, like, freshwater summer line while you were in Newfoundland, and then you sailed down to Brazil, you'd be in trouble.
1: That's right, because your boat would then, the water would come over the sides of the ship, or you'd be overloaded and, and, and threatening the founder. Right?
2: So, we've been talking about um, surface waters. Uh, that's what Plumstil lines are all about. Uh, you were telling us about how there are two different water masses in the Strait of Gibraltar.
1: Right, so I've been talking about the surface densities and how that changes with temperature and, um, well, with temperature mostly, oh, and being fresh and But underwater, we have um, water masses. And so a water mass is a bunch of water that's all about the same temperature. and slimming. It's all the same density that makes it a mass. And in the Mediterranean uh, Sea, which is a sea beside the sea, it is very salty because there's a lot of evaporation, not a lot of rainfall, and it's very warm. But it's incredibly salty, and so it flows out by Gibraltar and it hits the Atlantic. And the Atlantic is on top because it's uh, warmer. Exactly right. It's to the top of the bottle there. Okay. It's called there, it, but it's less salty. Thank you. <laughs> um, Mediterranean outflow warm is going to go out below the cold, less salty. And so, as you were explaining, that the the cold trumps the freshness
4: of the Atlantic water,
1: right? The saltiness trumps the coldness of the Atlantic.
2: Yeah, because it goes underneath.
1: Right, right. But the reason that the very cold water is going high is because it's so fresh. Right. Yeah. the reason that the very hot water of the Mediterranean is below the cold water is because it's so salty. Uh, so, yeah, you got these two currents going every which way. And during World War II, they would... Um, the submarines, uh, the, um, the German submarines, would uh, turn off their engines and just drift in and out of the Mediterranean. And the uh, the Allied forces needed to know which water mass they were in in order to set the the depth charges to have an effect on them. And so Athelton Spillhouse from Woods Hole uh, developed the Bathy Thermograph, which was this torpedo-shaped thing that you could roll off the side of the ship. I had the privilege of doing this off the westward back in the 1980s. And so what Spilhouse did was he he took a uh, coil, a thermal coil that would expand, uh, unwind with heat. It had a tip on it, and then he had uh, a little bellows that would contract as it went down with pressure, and the bellows held a glass slide that had a single layer of gold on it. So you could see it; you couldn't see through it. it one layer of gold, and so as the sli- as the bellows contracted, the thermal coil would scribe the slide, and then you'd um, winch in the uh, Bassy thermograph, bring it up on deck, slide open this little this little doorway, and slide out this glass slide. you really careful to put your fingerprints on it because it's one-layer glass. And you put it in the view thing, and you could see a profile of the temperatures pretty steady, and then suddenly it gets colder or warmer when it changes. And so that's way they could map out where the thermocline, you know, where the water mass has changed. Thermocline means temperature change. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's that's how they measure the thermocline, and um, and so that's how we we know about thermal.
2: So it sounds like um, these different water masses are pretty separate.
1: Yes. Um,
2: so if so, I know that whales communicate by doing whale calls, and they can travel for a really really long time. So does that mean that um, whale calls are? Confined to the uh, water mass that they were made in.
1: Well, that's the neat thing, is that um, they found out that the reason the whales could haul so far was because the sound would bounce off the thermocline. So, um, you know, when you look when you look at a glass of water, you put a, a, a pencil in the glass of water, you'll see the pencil bend uh, at the at the air-water interface, it a sudden shift. And so that, it's the same kind of thing happening to the water, to the sound, and only it's between different water masses. And the, the water mass boundaries are smooth, so it doesn't slow down the sound. If the sound had to echo off the, the surface water, it's all wavy, or if it had to crunch along, the, bounce off the bottom, it would lose its momentum. But because it can ricochet in the very smooth hallway, that we're able to go a great distance. So, yeah, that's what those sound waves, or the sound carries.
2: So it kind of acts like that telephone with the two tin cans and the string?
1: Exactly, like the string. The string carries the water um, through... Yeah, yeah, the string... So the vibrations in the string uh, carry the sound further than just the... Yeah, that's a great analogy. So where are we?
3: Oh, now we're... uh... Talking about ocean science savvy said like
1: what we were doing yesterday. Oh, great. So, we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back uh, and talk about some hands on oceanography where we got wet. So, we'll be right back.
3: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.
4: On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, Please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate the number four oceans.org.
0: Dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. You are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 Again, that's one 472 5788 You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hey,
1: welcome back. Uh, my guests today are two of Ocean River Institute's uh, student interns, Dorothy Cooperson-Buegg and Dan Willis. Hi, guys. Hey. And we're talking about motion in the ocean, a climate change story, and we're looking at how climate change is impacting the ocean, uh, not just with sea level rise and increasing acidity, but actually um, affecting the currents that are flowing around the oceans here, and uh, we were just talking about the different um, water masses, and this is all, um, we're also walking the talk because we're going to, we go out into Harvard Square and um, and do some demonstrations. Um, right, so we're going to be, we're in Harvard Square every Wednesdays from 2 to 4 this summer uh, into about the middle of August, and, um, and so Dan, what are we doing
3: Well, we set up a booth in the middle of the square, and we had two activities out. Uh, The first activity, we took three tall glass pitchers, and we filled one with tap water. We filled filled all three of them with tap water to start with. And then to one, we added a whole bunch of salt. And to one, we added about a third the amount of salt. And so the saltiest vase was supposed to represent ocean water. The semi-salty one was for the brackish water, and then the tap water is obviously fresh, and we had a hydrometer, which is used for measuring water density, and we allowed people to come up and uh, put the hydrometer in each of the three vases to try to see if they could figure out which one was the saltiest, which one was fresh without having to up and chug the vase of water. Well, tell us about this
1: yellow hydrometer with black marks
3: on it. Oh, so... (laughs) (laughs) when you're in a pinch and you don't have a store-bought hydrometer, what you can do is take any wooden pencil you have lying around and stick a tack in the bottom of a metal tack and then if you put the pencil and eraser first, it'll it'll bob up and down and the further the pencil sticks out of the water, uh, you can tell the denser the water is. and You can make markings at water level where and then once you take it out, you'll be able to compare it with the other with the other vases to see how far in it sinks. It's not as precise as a hydrometer, but it'll get the job done. Well, yeah, and, and, but we, we
1: found out the hard way. That it's really hard to mark it when it's wet, and try to yeah. and get it to stand upright was, was a challenge and stuff. So we found that if we just put an extra ruler and marked off the millimeters, but that, that was enough kind of marks on it, mm-hmm. um, and then we counted the millimeters up and down, and we could see, right? That,
3: oh, yeah, there was a uh, really stark difference.
1: So basically, we were drawing pencil lines Yeah, on, on the pencil. So the good ship pencil went to sea in a bottle there and showed us (laughs) different densities. Uh, And what else did we do? um,
2: So what we did is we set up um, for, I guess, like four pint glasses. And in two of them, we had just fresh tap water. And then in two of them, we mixed in about a tablespoon of salt each to try and represent it being salty water. And then, um, to each one salty and one freshwater cup, we added some ice, and then to all four, we dropped in some blue food coloring to try and demonstrate or uh, to make more visible what, what happens when you add like cold water on top. And so basically, what we saw was if you add ice to the freshwater, um, the the blue dye just goes right down, and if you add ice. Uh, Why we, did the food
1: dye go down?
2: Well, basically because de- the dye is denser than the fresh water. But then um, if you look at the salty ones, um, even without any ice in it, the, the salty water, when you put the dye in, the, right. the dye kind of hung out on top and took a lot longer to reach the bottom of the cup than it did for the fresh one because the difference in density between the food coloring and the salt water was a lot less. Um, and then something that we found that was very interesting was when we put the ice into the salty water and we added the food coloring on top. Um, there was a very dark layer of melted fresh water on top of the salt water, and the dye just stayed in that layer and did not penetrate the salt water basically at all. And um, when, this was when we tried again, and it was a little extra salty. Um, and for like an entire half an hour, we kept on adding ice.
3: That was cool, yeah. We
2: and, had her on the, yeah,
3: and it just stayed up there the whole time. We had her on miniature slippery seat. Exactly.
2: That's
3: cool. Um, yeah, all of that was really... Uh, it was really well and good to demonstrate uh, water density. And understanding water density is imperative to understanding the ocean, but what all does this have to do with climate change itself? Uh, yeah. Um, right. So, we're looking at... Um, the,
1: the key was... The, well, climate change is causing... Uh, the ice cap to shrink. So what used to be in the summertime two-thirds ice cap over the Arctic Ocean is now one-third ice cap. And what's interesting is that means that come winter, you have all this formerly frozen water having the opportunity to freeze and become ice. And what we were interested in, and when that happens, um, the when ice forms in seawater. The ice itself is not salty. The salt's left behind in the surrounding water, and that makes it colder. That's very cold because it's freezing happening there, and it's very dense because there's a lot more salt in that. So that's the densest water in the world. And WNA on the bottom of the principle line, the densest water in the world, and so it sinks. And so what we're demonstrating in reverse in Harvard Square was that when we had an ice cube in fresh water, um, and you put the food dye on it, that cold melt water from the ice cubes caused it to sink quickly, as opposed to what you are saying earlier, when it just kind of waited to within its own weight. So we saw a little difference there. Um, but, yeah, so that's, that's the amazing thing, is that with more open Arctic Ocean in the summertime, we're going to get more freezing and more sinking of uh, ocean, more sinking of the water, Going down to the intermediate water mass.
2: So um, you were telling us how researchers traveled to the Arctic to Baffin Bay to research um, how the ocean was absorbing uh, the heat that was caused by climate change, and uh, due to the difficulty of the rough waters, they were utilizing the help of narwhals.
1: Right. Yeah. So it's you know they have these big. Uh, Connectivity density temperature array, CDT, better things, all these bottles all together. And they have to lower it over the side of the ship, and it takes hours because Baffin Bay is 3,000 feet deep. And then there's Baffin Hollow in the middle there, which is 7,008 feet deep. Um, and so it's a lot of time, it's not the best weather, not the best sea conditions to be tethered to this cable that's taking hours to lower and raise your CDTs, so they captured 14 narwhals and put uh, small devices on their, onto them that would record temperature and salinity and depth. Uh, and uh, the whales were great because they would dive, they dive to the bottom for halibut, So they're all going up and down, and they'd go up and down 10 to 24 times a day, and they wore these um, monitors for uh, about seven months, So every time they surfaced, there'd be a radio beacon that would send out the information. So they got a really great picture of what was going on. And they looked at the historical records, and they got a sense of where uh, the last time that someone looked in Bassin Bay, the thermocline, where the intermediate water, hit the surface water. And the the, uh, narwhals told them that it had, uh, that thermocline of the intermediate water had expanded By 160 to 260 feet, so it it used to be 600 feet, and now it was a lot less of that depth in the surface waters, and that's an indication of um, the ocean taking up the heat from global warming.
3: So how exactly does a thermocline go about moving? Yes. So the
1: thermocline moved because there was more... West Greenland Intermediate Water. Mm-hmm. So in, the, in Baffin Bay, there are three water masses. There's the surface water, which is diluted by... Um, Baffin. At the bottom of Baffin Bay, all the fresh water from Canada, like the, the Mackenzie River and stuff, joins the... Uh, comes into that area just below Baffin Bay before Labrador Sea. So that's huge dilution solution kind of thing there. And uh, the Arctic Ocean... Isn't very salty. There's a little bit of Arctic water coming in there. So it was um, the, the top layer is, is fresh, the middle layer is the intermediate uh, Greenland water, and then the bottom layer is really dense bottom water. And so the West Greenland intermediate water that the narwhals saw was more massive, more volume, that happened when the water was in the Arctic Ocean. As you know, because that was um, that's when it was taking up the heat from the atmosphere. So the, you know, and um, then it's clo- the only way out of Greenland, the only way out of the Arctic Ocean, is to there's a uh, counterclockwise dryer of the water circulating in the Arctic Ocean. It goes past over the top of Greenland and then down toward Iceland. And when it's between Iceland and Greenland is Denmark Strait. And that the water is all forced in through that, um, and that gives it more momentum. And when it goes, it's forced into that, it's there. It collides with the Atlantic Ocean water, the North Atlantic, which is warmer water. So it stays high, and the um, mid Atlantic, uh, the intermediate West Greenland intermediate water has to. Um, plunge down 11,500 feet. This is called the Denmark Strait Cataract, and it's uh, the largest waterfall in the world, but it's all underwater. It's 175 million square feet of water per second are going down 11,500 feet. So that's about 2,000 Niagara Falls, three times the height of Angel Falls in Venezuela, and it crashes down to the bottom there deep down, and then flows out as the West Greenland Intermediate Water. So that's where it's born. And then it, it, uh, it hangs to the right because of the Coriolis effect, and follows the coast of Greenland and up the other side of the coast of Greenland into Baffin Bay. Baffin Bay is between Greenland and Baffin Island. And that's where the Nauville kids. So they were sampling
3: surface water from the Arctic. So we've talked about the Coriolis effect and we talked about these huge underwater waterfalls. So how exactly is water moving through the ocean? Do we see more water moving through ocean currents and things like that?
1: Yes. So um, this is creating more water. This pumping of the freezing of, of ice of sea ice is pushing more water down and it's pumping the, it's putting more motion into the ocean. And in the North Atlantic, Uh, we're going to have that water coming down through um, the Denmark Straits of Iceland and and Greenland and then following the European shore and the um, going below the Gulf Stream there and coming up along Africa where you've got the uh, Canary uh, Current. And then when you get toward the equator, you get equatorial currents that are flowing across the um, Atlantic to um, the Caribbean. And those currents are accentuated because the world is turning to the east, and so the trade winds are pushing to the west, and so they pick up and get more energy to that giant gyre of circulating North Atlantic water that then heads up past Florida in, through the Florida Straits and goes up to... Um, well, so when it goes through the Florida Straits, it is being it is being compressed and forced through this narrow, and so it's jets through. And I forgot to mention that the Denmark Strait, the Woods Ocean they call that the superhighway because there's so much water being forced between Greenland and um, Iceland there. that They call that the superhighway jetting through. Well, we get the same kind of effect with the uh, Bahamas, between the Bahamas and, and Florida, the Straits of Florida, where the water's being squeezed through and then when it explodes the other side, it has to meander. So A meander is, you know, the bending of a river, and when the water is falling fast out of the mountains, it hits a plane, and it doesn't just jet straight out to the water body, be it lake or ocean. It's like a train colliding with a a train crash. The energy is put out laterally with the zigzagging of the train cars and stuff. So for the Gulf Stream, we have the most extreme lateral uh, meander toward Rhode Island it's ever been recorded. The meander actually got up on the continental shelf, so that's an indication of more energy, not less, uh, cursing through the Gulf Stream. Can you tell us a little bit about Svalbard?
3: Thank you.
1: So, um, Svalbard is the end of the um, end of the Gulf Stream, end of the road, and until 2007, and then the Gulf Stream was coming more to the surface and into the fjord of Svalbard, and so they're starting to have fjord ice melt and glacial melt from um, the Gulf Stream reaching there. And the Gulf Stream continues as kind of warmer, intermediate water into the Arctic. It Svalbard's right on the threshold between the Atlantic and the Arctic Ocean, north of from Norway. And the Gulf Stream goes either side of Svalbard and under the surface water into uh, bearing light along Norway, Siberia, and cyclonically turning around the Arctic waters again. Uh, And it is is giving off heat to the surface waters. And so that accentuates or increases the melt in the summertime of the summer ice cap. And then in turn, come winter, there's more open seawater to turn to ice. So there's more sinking cold, dense water into the same intermediate water that came speeding in from cell bars. So it's a positive feedback loop of bringing more water around the world.
2: So how does all this tie back into the idea of climate change?
1: Right. So climate change is the greenhouse gases are retaining the heat from escaping the Earth's atmosphere. So it used, the Earth used to give off more heat, outer space, and now it's being trapped, but heat's got to go somewhere. And so that heat is energy, and the energy's got to go somewhere. It's going into stronger storms, stronger droughts, uh, greater weather, greater circulation, and uh, more melting of sea ice and more freezing of sea ice. So we're seeing the energy dissipated in in these waves.
3: So, bringing it back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the program, what does all this extra motion in the ocean actually mean for the Gulf of Maine?
1: Good question. And we're going to address that right after this break. (laughs) We'll come back and talk some more with Dan and Dorothy.
0: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental
4: stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org
0: you are listening to Moyer's environmental dialogues to participate in today's discussion you're welcome to call into the program at 1866. 472 5788. Again, that's one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. 472 5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. I'm talking with
1: Dorothy Cooperson Zeeweg. Zeeweg. Sorry. Zeeweg.
2: We'll get
1: there. And, uh, were you <laughs> and we were talking about the motion in the ocean. Uh, this is a climate change impact is that it's increasing the motion of the ocean current uh, around the world and we started off with concerns in the Gulf of Maine and how that there was this um, report that our waters are special here we we're warming up faster than anywhere else in the world, faster than the Chesapeake Bay, faster than the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And um, I think that that was a perception that was gained from measuring the surface water in the summertime, which was a lot of that surface water, probably all of it, was river runoff water and surface, you know, running water off the land, where, yes, if you have a hot summer, it's going to be, in a hot spring, you're going to have hot surface water uh, coming out of that. Um, But, We've now been talking about, you know, how the, there's more, there was more water coming through the Florida Straits. there's greater meanders, there's well, closing waters, passing, surpassing uh, fall bars. How does that relate to us back here? And it, it, it's really exciting because um, that water in Baffin Bay, the Greenland Intermediate Water goes on both sides of Greenland and then comes back down. Um, along the um, out out of through the Davis Straits out of of, um, Baffin Bay and is um, uh, then we got water coming in from uh, 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 from Canada that mixes with it and makes it the Labrador current which is even stronger current and the Labrador current comes down of course along the coast of Labrador this is very cold nutrient rich water It, it swings around Newfoundland uh, it, it off of Newfoundland, it hits, It goes on either side of the Flemish Cap. And this is a, a bank that comes up out of the deep water there, and it's also where the Gulf Stream comes up. So the, the Labrador Current water dives under the Gulf Stream, and that's why it's so foggy off of the Grand Banks and off the Flemish Cap. And it's the best fishing area in the world because you've got the warm water mixing with a nutrient-rich water, so the, the warmth helps the algae bloom and the nutrients feed the algae, and the whole food system goes up. And then the, the water flows out along uh, Nova Scotia um, and heads south off of Georgia's uh, banks. A little bit of Labrador current water will peel off and come into that northeast channel into the Gulf of Maine, and that is... Um, but the amount varies, just like the tracking of hurricanes, whether it's going to be for Bermuda or New Orleans varies from year to year, the amount of cold Labrador current water that's coming through that 60-mile-wide deep ocean channel, northeast channel, into the Gulf of Maine, uh, varies year to year. The science terms for this are barn door open, barn door closed, or barn door jar, uh, referring to whether or not uh, uh, Labrador water comes in, and it spills into Georgia's basin there and then travels to the right. Uh, into the Jordan Basin and on circling around to the Wilkinson Basin. So this is a recharging of the, uh,
4: of the waters.
1: And so bravo that we're getting more labrador current when it comes in. But that's confusing people who are just measuring the water temperature in the Gulf of Maine. If they went, the study that, that we referred to the beginning only looked at surface water, but they say said it's on all the different depths. Um, The changes in the deep water temperature is not, especially if it's getting cooler, it's not because of global warming. It's because the barn door is open or closed in the Labrador Current.
2: So it sounds like if you're a fisherman in New England, you'd want to avoid the carpool lane and blast the AC. Um, Does this mean that...
1: (laughs) Cold water, right.
2: (laughs) Does this mean that climate change is a good thing for the oceans?
1: Right. So in this one instance, this is bringing in... Um, nutrients to the, the fishing grounds of New England, and it's meaning more more engulfing water is helping the communities in Europe, especially the British Isles, Norway, Svalbard. Uh, but there's more to climate change than um, than more current, and so no, climate change is bad, it's causing the sea level rise because of the thermal expansion of the water warm because of up more space and um, also there'll be sea level rise if the Greenland glacier melts and that's going to, or the Antarctic glaciers um, non-sea ice goes into the water, it's going to displace water uh, and no it's bad. it's bad because it's making the seawater uh, more acidic and uh, that that's not good So, um, Dorothy, what do you think we should do about
2: this? I'd say if you want to try and (laughs) avoid all this bad stuff from happening, definitely uh, reduce your carbon footprint, try and make uh, economically friendly or ecologically friendly choices, Um, engage in local politics as best you can to try and uh, make sure that your representatives are passing laws that are in favor of the environment. And also always remember to reduce, reuse, and recycle because more waste is horrible for everything that wants to live. Um, ocean acidification is really bad for calcium-based organisms like corals, um, clams, oysters, and plankton that are really important parts of the food chain um, and affects everything from like the smallest plankton up until uh, the biggest whales. So um, ocean acidification affects basically all the organisms in the ocean. <laughs>
1: Yes, it really does. And, and uh, you know, we, we're on the brink of these cascading problems that are happening and stuff. And um, I've been, been testifying about climate change. And when I talked about I went down to Hyannis to talk to the state about it and um, the state bill. And I said, I'm only going to talk about the rising acidity. And I'm only interested in that because I like to eat fried clams. And I'm worried that increasing acidification is going to be the end of clams. And that's pretty much. Close the house down they were asking where to bet- get the best fried clams and boss, around Cape Cod and stuff um, so this is a this is a scary problem that we don't know well already uh, oyster farms in Oregon have had to close because the sprats fizzled and they had to move elsewhere so uh,
3: it's a real problem we really need to uh, reduce our carbon footprint
1: and Dan what else can we do
3: yeah it's losing clams isn't incentive enough to try to reduce your footprint um Why is it bad? Oh, yeah, it's terrible because um, the more that we uh, impact the environment, the more unpredictable the weather becomes. There's more storms, longer droughts, and worse weather events. So we're going to have to worry about more Category 5 hurricanes like Hurricane Irma. And uh, for reference, uh, a Category 5 storm is four times worse than a Category 4. And Hurricane Katrina was only a Category 3, so that really says how powerful a Category 5 is um 2017 was one of the most active recorded hurricane seasons um since i started recording hurricane seasons uh maria hit puerto rico irma hit the virgin islands they were both category five hurricanes and they intensified rapidly after forming uh means they jumped from being a category three hurricane all the way up to a category five in under 24 hours which is pretty terrifying to think about yeah that's just remarkable i mean that's- that's a lot of energy that causes a
1: hurricane to go from category three to category five, and this energy is coming from those greenhouse gases that are preventing energy from escaping planet Earth and having to be redirected back to um, back home in so we know that um, and we had an earlier program I talked to um, Angelo about. Her book about the Virgin Island, British Virgin Islands and what a terrible thing that is. And so, uh, you know, just because we haven't been hit by Category 5, hurricane, uh, it looks like just a matter of time that we're just going to see greater oscillations, longer droughts, stronger storms. So, yes, good point. Um, but, Dan, what can we do about that?
3: Well, the easiest thing you can do is find our website, oceanriver.org, and sign up for e-alerts so you can be alerted electronically about our upcoming events and things like that. Yes, and um, Dorothy, what else can we do about that?
2: Well, I just want to say quickly, um, aside from the fact that all this stuff can be, not only is it sad, it's also super dangerous, but it's also um, taking away from, like, our heritage, basically, because um, all of this impact on the ocean is doing things like basically killing the Great Barrier Reef which has been declared basically dead because of all the coral bleaching. And it takes so long for these tiny coral creatures to rebuild that it's basically, it's over. So we still should act. (laughs) Yeah, obviously we still should act and we can make a difference. But just remember that everything has an impact and it takes us a long time to figure out what the, what the consequences of all these things are. And they're always more far reaching than we imagined. But, um, you know, if you want to talk to us about it, you can come on down to the Ocean Science Saturday Wednesdays in Harvard Square from 2 to 4 p.m. Um, we'll be hanging out. Uh, we've got a tent, so we'll be, you can see our nice tent. We'll have lots of decorations, and we'll be by the historic uh, out-of-town news kiosk. Um, and you can, you know, if you want flyers or information or just have a conversation with us, we've got a little um, fun and informative series of scientific experiments if you want to be some hands-on, and it's for all ages from zero to 100. So come on down. We'd love to talk to
1: you. <laughs> yes, and um, you can see for yourself the motion in the ocean when you put, when you see, you know, Dorothy or Dan putting a little black food coloring or dark food coloring on a on an ice cube. You can see the ocean sinking right there for you, and uh, you can get to know a thermal climb today, you know, and... Um, the different water masses are separate, and even though the ocean looks the same in San on the shore, it's very complicated and very dynamic. Uh, the fact that the ocean is taking up 90% of the excess heat from global warming means that it's taking up a lot of energy, and how is that energy expressing itself, and we're finding out different ways of doing it, and one is that we have a stronger flowing uh, Gulf Stream than ever before, well, than recent than living memory. And, uh, well, since the um, ice caps have been so small, I don't know when that's happened before. Um, but what's important also is to, is to uh, have a good basic understanding of how things work. Be ocean literate. So, you know, our currents are going around, and little things have a big impact over time. So, yes, the coral reefs are really bad off now, but as we learn to all decrease our fu- carbon footprints, Uh, we're finding that people are advancing faster than we expected. More windmills online than we thought possible five to ten years ago, same with solar panels and stuff. So as people find ways not to pollute, uh, Mm -hmm. be it with nutrients or carbon or heavy metals, uh, it leads to a healthier ocean. And the more we know, the healthier the ocean will be. I I am confident that we can reverse the dying of the coral reefs it just is going to take many decades to um, overcome process processes. So um, we're out of time, but uh, Dorothy, thank you for joining us and talking about um, ocean, Motion Ocean. My pleasure. And Dan, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. And um, you all come on down to uh, a Wednesday, 2 to 4 in 2018. If you're listening after that, then uh, just... Visit us on www.oceanriver.org. And thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Please take care of yourself. And then take a moment to take a little care of this planet of ours.
0: Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.